Hello, everyone. You are listening to She Leads with Carly. I am your host, Carly Malatsky, and my guest today is Gianda Sachdeva. Gianda is a VP of product at LinkedIn, specifically the head of LinkedIn's marketing solutions products. After receiving a bachelor's in electrical and computer engineering from Cornell University and a master's in management science and engineering from Stanford University, Gianda began her career as an analyst in investment banking and then actually started at LinkedIn in associate PM role, the APM program, which we'll talk about, to then a group PM, director PM, all the way up to where she is today as a vice president in product. So Gianda, I am so excited to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Set the scene. Where are you in the world? Hi, Carly. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, where in the world am I? Uh, I am in California, uh, in the Bay Area. I'm at home, working from home. I'm actually technically in my kid's bedroom, but I, I don't think they mind anymore. Amazing. It's a, the best sound quality in, the, in, the, in your kid's bedroom. <laughs> Um, so Gianda, I want to go back to engineering at Cornell and also MSNE at Stanford. So clearly you've been very, you know, technically focused, technically inclined, and then you went into investment banking. So tell me about this time before we even break into product. Yeah, no, happy to. And it's actually a really, uh, I guess, humbling story for me because I, I went to Cornell and I, uh, was really happy with the the academic approach that the university had, really loved it. And then I decided to do my master's at Stanford, which by the way is so different from uh, being academic and theoretical, like a research university such as Cornell. And so I came to Stanford with the, with a very different uh, mindset and quickly learned that uh, applying the science is far more fun than the theory of the science itself. And so it became uh, really easy for me to start thinking about options that went beyond the traditional engineering options. Like how do you apply the science to different functions, to different type of work? Um, and finance was one that was interesting to me, especially after management science and engineering at Stanford. Uh, but the humbling bit of the story is, so I went to an Ivy League and then I went to Stanford and I thought, well, this is great. Like there should be companies lining up with offers, but that is not what happened at all. Um, this was in 2008 when I graduated. It was uh, during the crisis, the housing crisis or right in the middle of it. Uh, and it took uh, a lot of hustle to get my first job offer. And it was really interesting uh, that when I started my, my, I guess, academic career, I had a very different path in mind. And then by the time I finished it, uh, I was uh, in a very different environment and circumstance. So it was, it was an interesting ride and a very humbling moment, but then it got back on the right track with the, the first job I got. Wow. So I just, I want to dive into that even. How did you approach that phase where, you know, you're, like you said, Cornell, Stanford, you had all the right things on paper. And then obviously reality, you know, it was much, much more challenging. Yeah. How, how did you yeah. approach that phase and, you know, still keep strong mentally? Yeah, I think, I mean, I guess like yeah, some of it I is, uh, I guess, ignorance and bliss in some ways. Like I, I went through that phase thinking, well, you know, I'm, I can't be the only one who has been through something like this. Um, and the reality was at that point, everyone who was graduating was feeling the same pressure. So there was a community uh, of very smart people and uh, and they were all running into similar problems of, hey, people are not hiring as much or companies are not hiring international students as much anymore. So there were all these interesting, um, I guess, blocks in our way but I think the 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 roadblocks in some way were also opportunities in retrospect I, I will say that in that moment it didn't feel 
that way. But in retrospect, some of those relationships that we formed uh, with the companies that we were interviewing with uh, made the the future career stronger. So the people I met in my interview process, you could tell like with some of the teams and some of the companies that uh, they were not in it for the long term and some companies were and it, it was really humbling that hey, some of them were actually going to show up for you in a moment uh, like the crisis. And even when you get a job in a, com- in a, I guess, industry like financial services during a financial crisis, it, it's not a stable job, right? Like every six months, every three months, there were layoffs. So keeping that job and, and staying good at it uh, and making sure that you, you could plan for your future was... Um, was really some some learning for me but it was it was helpful wow so so after a job in finance you know you then come across the apm program at linkedin and obviously apm programs i'd love to even hear you know your perspective about apm programs and breaking into product i know that's a very common way versus you know maybe a senior pm role that says five to seven years of experience but take take me through that process of you found this opportunity and what what drew you to it? Why why did you think that you know being an APM is the next move? Yeah, great question. So so technically, the way this happened was I uh, I got um, an email, a LinkedIn email from the head of business operations at LinkedIn for a role in uh, the business operations team. And at that point in time, I was this is my second year as an analyst in investment banking, and I obviously having gone through the ups and downs of banking, I was like, no. It may not be a bad idea uh, to to give tech a try. And at that point, LinkedIn was emerging as a really strong brand. Uh, and so I ended up meeting uh, this person. And in the, in the conversation, I realized that it's not, this is different. It's not a job. It's actually a, a very strong sense of purpose that that you build in these in these meetings about the company, about the people. Uh, and it, it was, it felt more like a cause to everybody who was talking to me as opposed to, hey, this is what I do for a living. And that was a different way of thinking about work uh, as, as somebody who had graduated a couple of years ago, desperately trying to stay in the country with a job in hand. That was not the mindset I had before I started talking to them. Uh, and so it was really, it was interesting. And it was um, uh, a really good reminder of how you, when you find something you love, it can actually be uh, a different experience and, and not feel like a job every day. So I did that. I actually started my career at LinkedIn in the BizOps role. I did it only for a few months and I switched to product. But uh, the product management function, to answer your question, is a very nascent function. It doesn't mean the same thing across companies. So even if you ask someone, hey, what does an APM do at XYZ? And then you turn around and ask an APM at another company, the role could look, at least 10 years ago, look very, very different. And so for me, it was... uh, a bit of that investigation almost that hey what does this role mean does it do i have to code do i what is my uh, where, where do i draw the line of how much technical expertise is needed versus strategic expertise um, and it turns out it's a little bit of everything and so for people who uh, who have grown up in the in the world of technology and science either by formal education or because they around them they've just been exposed to it a lot it's it's just a little bit of everything you design a little you build a little you strategize a little you execute a little you launch a little you market a little and i think that feeling of having um some of a little bit of experience of all the different parts of bringing a product to market is what drew me to it and i i've stayed since yeah so 
I'm curious because when you even mentioned LinkedIn, a lot of people say, you know, go for the, the company and have that passion for the company versus, you know, being a product manager and getting the skills as a product. Where would you say how, what percentage was more, you know, this is the role I want to take on versus this is a company and the culture that I'm really drawn to? Yeah, great question. I, you know, at that point in time, I think I made the decision uh, not very thoughtfully, but now, now I think when I look back, um, I lucked out because the company was so strong. And I would, if I were to give that advice to somebody today, I would say, go for the company, go for the culture. Because internally, once you're in uh, and you are, you're a good fit for the culture, I think the, the opportunity to transform your career will show up, right? Like you could start in any function and you could say, hey, I actually love working on the marketing side or sales or uh, crop dev. And you could transform your career internally at a brand that, you know, is a good culture fit for you. So I would, but, in, but you know, there is no question in my mind that that's how one should prioritize, especially in tech, where some of these skills uh, can be picked up if you really wanted to spend more time doing it and, and finessing them. Yeah. So tell me now, how much of a role, first, how much did you think of your engineering background as a key contributor and a helpful skill to have when you entered product? Did you think of it and was it a was it a key factor or, you know, once entering LinkedIn, as you said, every company's different, they all have different products, different levels of technical skills that you need. But now looking at, you know, your product career, how big of a role did that engineering background play for you? So I think engineering background, you know, beyond the hard skills of actually learning how to code, um, I think it teaches you a lot of disciplines that, uh, come in very handy in almost any role. Uh, but especially in product, there were two things that stood out. One was logical reasoning, just, you know, being very rational about the sequence of things that have to happen, the cause and effect, uh, and, and applying rational thinking, probabilistic modeling to a lot of the decisions you're making. That that stuff is not easy to learn on the job if you've had no formal education on it. So I think that, that one, if someone doesn't have a formal engineering background, I always recommend uh, some course in uh, e either probability or um, logical reasoning or decision-making, which can help you uh, do your PM job better. And then the second one uh, was the comfort with data. LinkedIn is a very data-driven company. There is a lot of, um, uh, you know, comfort in knowing that there is, uh, these members are sharing with us what they want to see, and then we can take that and build a better product for them. The data that's coming from our members, of course, we we hold it dearly. It's, it's very important to us. Trust matters to us. But then using it responsibly, making a better product with it is a very exciting opportunity for someone who can be, you know, driven by data first thinking. And so that also, with the engineering background, uh, was very helpful. Yeah, it, it's interesting because when I ask this question and, and when I even, you know, talk to others from Stanford, from work, a lot, another reason is also, you know, connecting to the engineers because you're going to be working closely with them. But I love that you mentioned, you know, even just purely as a, as a PM alone, just logical reasoning, thinking better. I love that. And it's something that, you know, kind of goes overlooked. So, so thanks for saying that. Um, I have a question now. Take me in that that APM program, yeah. that phase of entering LinkedIn, being a new product manager, and even before going into it, briefly describe what is an APM program and why is it so valuable? Yeah. So APM, which is Associate Product Management, is a program for um, 
the first time product managers who have not done product before. Uh, it doesn't actually, by the way, you know, some people uh, conflate it to mean that it is the, the first job that you take uh, after graduation. That's not true. You could be doing anything. I did finance uh, for a couple of years and then I still started as an APM because of my first time doing product. So it's first time product managers. And the way it's structured in most companies now is that it's a rotational program where you rotate uh, across at least two different products and therefore two different teams as an APM before you graduate from the APM program to go to the PM program. And for me personally, uh, APM program and APM rotations are a wonderful way to see what product management is. Uh, and not just in one team and one product, but uh, two, at least two different ones, because then it starts to give you a flavor of areas that are, it's not about you, it's about the team, it's not about you, it's about the product. What are the common skills that you bring to both? What are the learnings you take from one to the other? And in a company like um, LinkedIn and actually probably applicable to most consumer internet companies, there are a lot of dots that you can connect from one product to the other. Um, and so the more you can bring that learning as you move forward in your career, the better it will be. So APMs getting their hands dirty with actually shipping stuff, build, writing the PRD down, working with the designer to come up with that experience and then working with the engineers to deliver and build it. I think that that experience itself with low pressure uh, because you're, you're just starting off and you have a lot of support um, is, uh, is a really good incubator program uh, for becoming a great PM down the road. Wow, Sound, sounds amazing. And now you're a VP at LinkedIn, not, you know, not a small startup, not a growing startup at LinkedIn, one of the top, top companies that everyone, everyone knows and uses. So I want to know actually that process to becoming a VP, because as you said, you mentioned even before when we talked that you went through each stage from senior group, director, how did, was that a very seamless transition or what was the key differences from a product perspective? Yeah, it's a great question and, and a good, uh, you know, reminder to always think back and, and, and reflect on what worked and what didn't. I think in general, uh, the this whole career I can break down into two parts. One was when I was growing up the IC ladder and then the second one when I was growing up the management ladder. I think the IC ladder honestly is a blur to me, but not because it was long ago, but because I was so heads down working on the products I was excited about, shipping them, that these milestones of APM to PM to SPM almost almost like all uh, came together in one big blob. And part of it is because we were in a hyper growth stage at LinkedIn, things were happening very fast. So if someone is in a in a startup or in a company that's going through that phase, I think it will feel that way. It's just so much happening that these milestones become less significant, uh, at least singularly, but together they mean a lot. Uh, and I think the I see the, the when you're learning the craft, when you're learning the, the actual job of product management, um, I th at that point in my career, I was over-indexing on the learning bit itself versus the um, the promotion part of it. But that changed when I moved into management, not because I stopped learning, but because the, the skill set that was needed in management was quite a bit different than what I was used to. Managing people, influencing decisions through a team, uh, and managing roadmaps through a team and not having direct control on it, in the early days was really hard. Like I, you know, the GPM, uh, the I guess the SPM to GPM transition, where you suddenly have a team of people who's actually building the product and you're a little bit removed from the day-to-day -day, is a very different um, 
ball game for me. And it took me a while to settle into that role and feel like, no, I know how to do this better. But I think it all comes down to the skills that you need to be a good manager, which took me a longer time to build on the IC skills. Because I, I think I came in with the engineering background that gave me a head start. But this one I had to pick up uh, all on my own. But I think a lot of people go through that transition. And I, I think just doing it thoughtfully and not rushing your way through it is is the advice I would give to people, especially when, they, when they're a first time manager. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I have, I can go in a lot of different directions, but first in that initial phase when, you know, there was some friction points, it wasn't so easy and there were some things you had to learn. How did you, how did you learn that? Was it just by doing, were you doing things on the side? Cause it's a hard thing to just, you know, take a task and learn cause it's managing other people. Yeah. It's a very different, yeah. different type of thing. So how did you go about it? Yeah. It's all happening in real time, right? You can't take a week off and say, Hey, I'll learn management and come back. It's not a hard skill. Uh, I, I think, I think, it, I mean, it's actually now, now that I'm a parent, I can relate so much to it because they're you know, just making other people do anything different from what they want to do is is a really challenging thing and sometimes they're right and you are the one who has to learn so i think there are two there are two things that helped me one was uh just going through it like the experience of it not fighting it right like i when i inherited a team uh, back in the day i had people on the team who thought they should have had my job and people on the team who are much older than I was, far more experienced than I was. And so that creates a dynamic that can be very hard to manage, but just going through the motions of it and giving yourself the time and space um, to experience it and learn along with it. And for what's what, like I was, um, and I, I do that st- I do the same thing even now, I am very transparent with the team, the teams that I lead, very open and transparent, all, almost to a fault. Sometimes I have to hold back. But that transparency helped me in the early days tremendously because I wasn't coming in with an agenda. I was very open about, hey, this is what I need to, you know, something I need to work on, something that uh, I think you need to work on and let's figure out if that makes sense and, and plan together. Some people liked it. You know, some people didn't like it. And I think you you just learn along the way what are the kinds of teams you work well with, uh, what are the deficiencies you have, what you need to fill on the team, et cetera. So that was a good experience for me. And then the second one is, um, you know, I think there are moments in your career where mentorship matters far more than it does, uh, you know, all the time. But that was a moment in my career when mentorship mattered. Uh, and one of the, the pieces of advice I got um, in general for mentorship was, you know, you can sit down with a mentor and learn the theory of it. Like you can ask them these questions and they'll tell you how they manage it. But it's a whole other thing when you watch them in action. So I, at least in my mentors at that time, I insisted that I be in their staff meeting. I insisted that I be a fly on the wall in one of their one-on-ones, not a tough one-on-one, just a regular one-on-one. Because I just wanted to see what best in class looks like. And once you see it in action, I think it becomes a lot easier that oh, this is how you react when someone says that, or this is how you not react when someone says that. And I think those um, visual cues were far more helpful than reading books or like in theory, academically understanding what, what management should be. Wow. I And it's funny, I was actually going to ask yeah. about if you did have any yeah. mentors. So it was perfect. And 
that was you simply asking, you know, a mentor saying, can I, can I hop in on this meeting and just asking them and, and then letting you. And it was, it was, it was like that. that yeah. It was yeah. It was easy. Staff. I mean, I think staff meetings for, for these mentors were, was easier than the one-on-one settings, but I didn't impose on any one mentor for all their one-on-ones. I just said, pick any one-on-one. I just want to sit through one. And of course, both people in the one-on-one were okay with it. Um, and these staff meetings and all hands meetings and big, you know, forums where they're running a business, where they're running a product, asking for metrics, just watching how they do it week after week uh, and then realizing that okay this is something I do really horribly right now I need to fix and this is something I, I might even be doing better than than what I'm watching and so I think in some cases just building your own confidence by by the just the benchmarking exercise itself uh, can make a huge difference it was very valuable for me in those years Wow, I, I I really appreciate that. That is great, great advice. And so tell me, what is what are two of your biggest challenges that you deal with as a VP of product at LinkedIn specifically? What what worries you the most in your day? Oh, I mean, every day is different. I I think uh, at the highest level, though, when when you're in a senior role in a company, um, your role transforms into. Uh, not worrying so much just about your team and your product, but about the company, and not and LinkedIn is a, such a wonderful product and, and the team. I mean, it's amazing. So it's less about how we will do it; it's about what all can we do. So that the prioritization exercise is, I guess, the the hardest thing I do, which is like here are all the options that we have that we can go after. Uh, we got to pick one, uh, and we got to decide what we are not doing. I think that's the hardest part about building strategies, building products, that, that brutal prioritization comes into play at senior levels far more than it does even in the IC level. And I think that if, if you scale that to the company uh, scale, that it's not just about my team, but for the whole company, it becomes, uh, I guess, more challenging and, and more interesting in many ways. Yeah. Before we go to the fun questions, yeah. I actually want to really dive into this specifically. So prioritizing features and what's next, what to do. There's a lot of different things that come into it, whether it's, you know, the, as you said, what's best for LinkedIn, what's, you know, users are, are requesting, what the team is capable of, like all of these factors, how do you weigh, weigh them all? And what, you know, what comes into it? What are the biggest factors that you think of? Yeah, I, I think, you know, one way, and we recently actually did a, a revision of this exercise, one way to come to, um, I guess a more informed way of thinking about this is to have a set of principles that everyone agrees on. And those principles can then determine the priorities. So principles could be, hey, you know, delivering member value or customer value is the most important principle. Uh, or it could be, hey, we live, we, we operate in an ecosystem of players where there are so many players we can partner with and we're going to prioritize that over building everything in-house. When you come up with these principles, then I think prioritization exercise becomes a tad bit easier where you look at all the, in the ambition is you know, unbounded in so many ways. And you look at all the value propositions you can deliver uh, to our members and to our customers. Uh, but then you decide where is it that we can provide the maximum value? Where is it that we can um, really uh, set and define the standards that will take the industry forward as opposed to copy paste what everyone else is doing? And then finally, like you look at the ecosystem and say, where is the, you know, what is the area that we can leverage this ecosystem of players in the in the market already to move faster as opposed to, hey, we do something that only we can build and do uh, and bring to market, which will take us longer uh, and may also not create the same scale and, and impact that we can with the, with the rest of the industry. So coming up with those principles uh, can really be clarifying when you, when you do the prioritization exercise. 
And these principles, you're defining them even before prioritization, Correct. right? Or is this mainly Correct. for, okay, so it's like a overall principles that you establish with your team. And then when prioritization comes, then you can look back at these principles and play, play according to them. Absolutely. Is that right? Absolutely. These are, these are operating principles that are codified ahead of time. And of course, they take into account everything that's happening around us. So we revisit them. We, did, we just finished one round of revisiting them uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it's, you know, it's not... Uh, black or white like there are there are lots of places that you could do uh things differently and, and come up with a different set of outcomes and that's why revisiting them matters and getting feedback from the teams matters uh but once you lock it i think it starts to give people a really good way to make these decisions on their own as opposed to having that blocked by any one team or any one leader because uh, I, I think that network effect is really important where if you have a big team if everything is going to get blocked on you, it's just going to move a lot slower. It's important that you cascade and, and create that network effect where everyone is, is using something similar as a baseline, but talking to each other to make sure that uh, we build and improve it over time. Yeah, definitely. I, I even, it reminded me, even as a founder, you know, starting a company, you establish values and then, you know, you make sure that everyone really knows these values. So when they hire, it just completely trickles down and it's easy and seamless. So it's very similar, but you have almost these like product Focus principles in a way yeah. that you can then use yeah. for your team. So Very amazing. All right, Gionda, I have to know what is your favorite product <laughs> and why? Yeah, it's you know it changes a lot these days. Uh, I really enjoy the Kindle Fire. I was I I, I was used to like using uh, books and I love the smell of books and just having books around. But now the the convenience of just having the ability to download everything in one place and being able to read it in the dark when everyone else is sleeping is amazing. So I, I am in love with that product at the moment. Uh, I also uh, I have two little kids. And so anytime I see something that they are playing with, especially in the this toy industry is just a whole other I guess, revelation to me. I didn't realize how much is out there. But seeing every every couple of weeks, I like come across something new that uh, helps kids with some new skill. But every time I look at it, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I didn't have it as a kid growing up. So lots of products I'm in this room that always inspire me to... Um, to just, you know, tangibly feel like what a good product is and, and, and seeing the delight on my kids' faces is amazing too. So toys keep going in and out of that list, but Kindle has kind of stayed for the last couple of months. Amazing. I actually had someone else mention the Kindle as well. That's so great. makes sense. But I want to know when you're looking at a product, even, you know, the toys that your kids are playing with, the Kindle, what is like a key factor that you're that really draws you and you're like, this, this is an amazing product? Is there something that sticks? You know, uh, it's... It's interesting. And of course, it depends on which product you're looking at. But usually, I think simplicity of design really is is important to me. Like if it's designed in a in a way that it it brings delight and convenience at the same time. And, you know, it's these are not these are diff difficult things to get right, because convenience could mean that you take out features uh, that that, you know, just you strip it down to the core value proposition i suppose uh but the delight part and simplicity of like hey this i did not expect that uh, i did not expect you to solve one more problem so oftentimes like i i think there is the there's a simplicity in design and then if they go one step further and solve a problem that i had and i did not expect it to be solved i think that alone makes it a huge win in my in my books 
Wow, very cool. And you can even relate that to the Kindle. Like you thought, you know, books are great. Everything's great. But now here's a Kindle where you can download everything easily. So yeah, and I think the one step further for me with Kindle is that, uh, you know, you turn off the lights at night and you can still read it because there's backlight in the Kindle itself. But it's it's designed in a way that nobody else gets disturbed while you're reading. You don't with an actual book, you have to keep your uh, nightlight on. And so I yeah, so I think simple things like that make a difference. Wow. Well, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been such a pleasure. I've learned so much from you. So really, thank you for coming on, Sheely. Thank you for having me. Of course.